The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, I titled this talk a few weeks ago, and the title of it was, And So What? (laughs) And So What? We've been talking for the last three weeks about the three characteristics of existence, about impermanent suffering and not-self. One could go on talking about these for actually quite a long time. It's not, they're not simple. But even talking about them, what does that have to do with the ending of suffering? So what? So what? Where Where do we go from here? And how are things really? How are things really? We've spent a lot of time talking about what they're not. How are they not? Well, how are they? Where do we go from here? So there is, there is an impermanence. There is the arising, the present, and the passing away. And this happens over and over again with everything, that everything in our existence, all of our experience. When you look at it closely, it arises, it's there, and it passes away. And we don't get to choose that. We don't get to decide what arises and passes away. Things come up, they go away. We're born, we live, and we die. And we do that every moment. Everything is, it arises, it's there, it passes away. There's also the, the suffering, suffering which can be translated as, as stress or unsatisfactoriness. And certainly this arising and passing away is a bit unsatisfactory, unless it happens to be something we don't like. Then we're quite willing to see it go away. But basically the uncertainty, ambiguity of this arises and passes away is stressful. It's not desirable. We don't like that. It just is. It just is. Not only that, but who is, who am I? What does not-self mean? What does it mean that there is nothing inherent to me that is unchangeable? It is this very notion of something arising and passing away and being so changeable and so unsatisfactory that allows us to actually see that there is no core being here that is always the same. We are also always arising, being, and passing away. Every aspect of what we think about fits into that category. And we also talked about the fact that that the experience, the way we experience ourselves, is through the aggregates. There's the physical reality, there is the the feeling, tone, this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There is the perception, this is what I call this, this is a knocker. The perception of something, naming. There is thinking, this is what I think about it, I want more of it, I want less of it, it should be this color. And there is awareness, 
That is the knowing of each of these things. There's the knowing of each of these things. Even awareness, there's knowing awareness. You know, sitting here, I know I'm awake when I'm asleep. I don't necessarily, I'm not aware of what's going, but my body is still working. It's still going. Awareness is not something that I can call my core self. None of these things is something that I can call my core self. So when we realize that, there, that none of these things holds that, all of these things are, are tied up somehow with unsatisfactoriness, we, it allows us to, to let go of it, to let go of it, and not hold on to it, not grab it, not to say, this is me, this is mine, this is myself. We can let go of it. And that is where it comes into the not suffering part. When we can let go of it, we become disenchanted with all of these ideas we have about who we are and how things are. And in this disenchantment, we lose the passion and we let it go. Okay, so that's a short story. Now, this morning, on my way down here, I had a particularly bad commute, which started almost immediately by somebody going very slow right in front of me, and I left late, of course. And this was even before I got to town. You know, so we're talking the first three minutes of the drive. Right there on, on my road that nobody drives on, and certainly not that time of day. <laughs> Crummy little dirt road that I'm on, and I get behind somebody going really slow. This this continued. By the time I got onto Lucas Valley Road, there were 13 cars in a row behind somebody going 10 miles an hour slower than the speed limit. You got a lot of frustrated people there. So it kind of continued like that the whole way. You know, driving across the Bay Area in rush hour traffic is definitely not my favorite thing. And as I was driving down, I was thinking, why am I doing this? I'm too tired. I really don't want to be doing this driving. I really, I don't want to go this morning. You know, I'm halfway here, and I'm just like, I don't want to go. And, and I, I'm aware of the, the fact that this isn't just me not coming to the sitting. This is also me not wanting to live up to a commitment I had. Very real. Uh, and I watched my mind grab on to things having to do with the the, the driving, you know. I noticed my desire to control. I noticed the imperative to control, that I must do this. I noticed the thought arise, this is just you doing the usual thing about trying to control. I watched myself think about it. And finally I said, okay, you can let it go. And I let it go. I'm not going to get there any faster worrying about it. Let it go. Brake lights come on. The whole process starts over again. Let it go. So I was feeling okay by the time I got here, especially I got here, you know. Once you arrive, then the process of arriving is behind you. 
it's over already. You're here. It wasn't until I sat down in meditation and started to breathe that I really knew what was going on, which was that I was feeling a very heavy sense of responsibility about saying the right thing to you this morning. That not wanting to be here actually didn't have anything to do with the driving, but I allowed myself to think that for quite a long time. And it was only when I sat and let go of thinking about how I had arrived here, which was very convenient. It's convenient. When you're feeling uncomfortable, find something that is familiar and blame it on that. It's easy. But when I sat down, it was no longer the truth. It still was not pleasant, the drive here, but it wasn't the point. The point was that I was worried that I could say something that really had value for you. And when I realized that, I recognized the weight I was feeling, the unsatisfactory nature of that weight on my shoulders, and I just let it go and said, whatever happens is what's going to happen. And ease returned. Now, absolutely nothing has changed. I still haven't told you anything significant. I still have that the desire to give you something. But what has happened to me has been a letting go of seeing things a certain way and wanting them to be a certain way. And that, my friends, is the process. And it is so dependent on mindfulness. Mindfulness. So... Because of the unchangeable nature of everything, we're always waiting for the next hit of experience. You know, this, okay, this is unsatisfactory. What's next? (laughs) And what we can come to realize is that we don't have to have some great earth-shattering thing that we resolve or some great insight to feel the ease of being in the moment without expectations. Anything is worthy of being let go of. Anything. What I talked about was really mundane, mundane things that were going on in my mind, but they were causing my mind to contract. A large part of what we do has to do with how we are viewing our experience. Understanding that our experience is made up of all of these aggregates is a way of unraveling what we see happening and removing ourselves from the ideas about what's happening. So, there is a, I was reading something a couple of weeks ago that was just stunning. It was uh, an article on uh, Nature magazine, which is a preeminent uh, journal for scientific publications, and if you get something published in Nature, it's, it's really a feather in your cap. It's a, a very highly respected journal. So they had an article about... Uh, they, they actually have an archive called Challenges in Irreproducible Research. Now, the, I, I remember when I was a scientist, there was a journal called the Journal of Irreproducible Results, and we all laughed about it. But it turns out that happens much more often than we think. And so this article 
talked about a guy by the name of C. Glenn Begley, who is a chief scientific officer at Tetralogic Pharmaceuticals. But when he was with Amgen, which is a very big biotech company, he and his team tried to reproduce a lot of research having to do fundamental things with with, uh, cancer research. And they were unable to replicate 47 out of 53 landmark papers about cancer. Unable to replicate 47 of 53. That's huge. Even with the help of the original scientists who, were, who did the work, they couldn't reproduce them. Landmark papers that changed the way people thought about cancer. Replication is kind of the gold standard. If you can't replicate it, you can't, you can't claim it anymore. So they didn't publish what those results were, by the way. Because everybody had signed non-confidentiality uh, agreements, so, so we don't know what, what papers they were. But it turns out that when you're doing science, sometimes the most subtle effects are responsible for the results. Things that aren't part of the research plan. You know, there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to alter this thing. But I don't realize that in altering this thing, I'm not paying attention to that thing, which is what's affecting the outcome. I remember a colleague of mine once had done this amazing job of labeling a compound, and he was so excited about it. And then he couldn't reproduce it, and we put it down to some magic water. And the magic water was water that came out of a still that I had cleaned, that I had cleaned unfortunately, and still had some chlorine in it. And the chlorine is what made his reaction work. Fortunately, he only spent a month in this work and not, you know, three years because he ran out of water. (laughs) This happens, okay? This is a phenomenon that happens, which is that we cannot control and we can't even see what we think we are controlling. This is a very important point, that we can't really see what we're doing. So, so there was another paper written by a guy named John Iannonidis. I hope I said that right. And what he did was go through a lot of research reports and, and uh, compare them. He's a, a meta-scientist. And he wrote a paper titled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False which did not make him popular in the scientific world at all. And they, in fact, he he devised a mathematical model on why this might have been true. And, of course, everybody said that his research was skewed by his own biases. (laughs) (laughs) But then he published another paper examining a decade's worth of highly regarded papers, the effect of daily aspirin on cardiac disease and the risks of hormone replacement therapy for older women. These are two things that we know have been Absolute truths, which are no longer absolute truths. Okay. This isn't a matter of maliciousness or fraud. It's characteristics of ways that there is unconscious bias. Now, then I ran across a paper that was titled, Discoverer Was Freed by What He Didn't Know. I loved that title. So um, you, you have, may, have, may have heard of stem cells. These are cells that uh, have generative power. They, they, uh, the research around stem cells 
revolves around things like maybe being reproducing, maybe uh, uh, initiating new cancer cell, or sorry, new cardiac cells in hearts that have been damaged by heart attacks where the cells have died off. And there are a lot of hopeful ideas around stem cells. And they're very difficult to, uh, to find and to get and to create. So this guy, who is not a biologist but an engineer, suspected that uh, researchers were actually creating stem cells from the stress they were undergoing in the laboratory. Now, you know, not being the right kind of guy, <laughs> he couldn't come out and say that. So um, his name is uh, Vacanti, and he's actually um, uh, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the anesthesiology department. And he has recently published a paper with his colleagues that shows that you can create stem cells by just washing them for a half an hour in a dilute acid solution. This is so incredible. I can't begin to tell you how incredible this is. And they showed that they were viable stem cells. Now, what's interesting about this is when he decided that he had to prove this, to demonstrate this and prove this, he knew he couldn't go to a stem cell expert because the stem cell expert would tell you, absolutely, it's just not possible. So he chose a student to work with him who didn't have the views about what was possible and not possible. And they demonstrated this well enough to get it published in Nature magazine. Now, it's a long way. They haven't, they haven't made a human stem cell this way. You know, I mean, there are all these limitations on it, but there are people who are pretty excited. There's a guy by the name of Shang Ding, who's a scientist at UCSF, and he said it's too early to say that this is a better, safer, or more practical way to make stem cells. And then he went on to say you know, this might explain why stress appears to increase the risk of cancer because stem cells can cause tumors. So he, he leaped from, this is, there's going to be a lot of work to prove this is really true, to a possible outcome, which now is going to guide some people, they're going to be looking for this possibility. This is how bias and views work. Now, he may be absolutely correct, and it is truly exciting that they could potentially do this. This whole story is about the effect of views on the outcome of experiments. The effect of views. There is the view that says, this is what I expect to see, and I find it. There is the view that I don't expect to see this, so I don't find this. There is the, what happens if you let go of all of this and just kind of look independently, which all scientists hope they're doing. <laughs> this is what we do with our lives. This is what we do. The important characteristics here have to do with not being controlled by, by what we think about what's happening. Looking at just what is happening. And then not forming conclusions about what it means. <laughs> what it means. If all of this stuff happens under the very highly controlled conditions of scientific experiments, imagine how sloppy it must be in the messy world that we just live in. Like my deciding that I was just too tired of driving and not noticing 
let's call it vulnerability. I, I experienced the vulnerability, but I gave it the wrong meaning. Mindfulness, concentration, contemplation, and intention have everything to do with how we experience the world and whether we're suffering or not suffering. Mindfulness is that, that uh, pairwise location of awareness and subject. I'm aware of this. I'm mindful of this. I'm aware of this. Concentration is a, a kind of firm attention, you know. So while I'm here, I may be aware of the fact that I'm sitting on this cushion, but most of my attention is mental and emotional. Most of my attention is in the context of this discussion. Most of my attention is not on my body. But I'm not unaware of my body. Okay? So there is the mindfulness, there is the concentration, there is contemplation. This is an important part of mindfulness. It is the, it is the recognizing when I'm standing, I'm standing. When I'm sitting, I'm sitting. When I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Oh, and the speaking, oh, I'm a little not mindful of that speaking. Ah, there's, there's the contemplation, there's the noticing of something. And there is the intention. If my intention is to provide you with something, then that intention has to be paramount in my experience also. And so if, if, I'm, if that's what I'm concerned about, then worrying about whether my earring is crooked is just not consistent with my intention. Once again, I'm talking about the mundane only as a way of expressing what I'd like us to look at. So we notice the movement of our mind as thoughts arise and pass away. What is the movement of your mind as you're sitting here? I'm listening, I'm not listening. I'm here, I'm not here. I wish they had better chairs here. I'm actually kind of tired. What is the movement of your mind? Is it a, what is the quality of the movement of your mind? Is it constricted? Does it feel easeful? Does it feel open? Is it just weary? Notice the quality of your mind. What's the attitude that you're bringing to this moment? Is it openness? Is it, I'm just don't want to hear any more of this. The mind is comprised of a lot of activities. Judgment, discovery, lots of activities. And the objects of the mind are changing all the time. And sometimes we just hook on something because it's familiar and we know where it's going and I'm just going to do that. And we let go of the alertness that is part of mindfulness. The alertness of paying attention to what's really happening. We don't notice, I'm excited, I'm dull, I'm 
embarrassed. We don't notice that. We notice something else. Or even if we notice, we notice discomfort, we name it quickly. And we don't say, what else is here? What else is happening? What else? What else? That's, That's part of what alertness gives us. And then there are the activities that that compel us to move. So these are the reactions. So I'm uncomfortable, I have to change something. That's a reaction. That's a movement of the mind. How often do we do that? Are we always trying to fix what's uncomfortable? There are some people who believe that every movement in life has to do with trying to fix something that makes us uncomfortable. We can only sit for so long. We can only listen for so long. We can only look for so long. We can only think for so long. And then we go to sleep. Try to notice your mind. Not so much the content of of what you're thinking, but what happens. What's the quality of the mind? What's the attitude of the mind? What's the feeling in the mind? See that it arises and passes away, that it is not you, it is not yours. It is not unchangeable. It arises and it passes away. There are things about me I like. There are things about me I don't like. They're not always present. They arise, they pass away. That's interesting. It is not me. It is not mine. If I could control everything, my life wouldn't be the way it is. (laughs) I would have all these things that I would want to fix. But sometimes, sometimes just seeing what arises in the moment is much more joyful than trying to control what's going to happen in the next moment. So where is your awareness? Right now, where is your awareness? What are you aware of? Physically, emotionally, mentally, what are you aware of? Or are you asleep and you're not really aware It's all possible. And it is not something to be judged. Not something to be judged. It isn't good or bad. What we're doing is we're looking at how is the mind reacting? And then we say to ourselves, hmm, is this skillful or unskillful? Not is this good or bad. Uh Uh-uh. We're not looking at good or bad. Does this further my intention? Does this not further my intention? Is this useful? Is it not useful? Is this consistent with my intention? Did I wake up with an intention this morning? Do I have an intention for my life? Or is life just happening around me? Life is happening to me, We have goals. We actually almost always have intentions, but we don't always know what they are. (laughs) 
Is it a skillful intention? Suppose my intention in coming here today was to entertain you. Might not be as skillful as some other intentions I might have. And then I would judge myself against that intention. So I've told this story many times, but I'm reminded of it. Um, so I have, I have this piece of uh, calligraphy in my house, a piece of paper that I keep in a cabinet where my wine glasses are. And it says, it's a quote from Ajahn Chah, and it says, This glass is already broken, so I enjoy it immensely. And every time somebody breaks anything in my house, we whip that out and wave it around. And it started out as a joke. But I have to tell you, I no longer care when a glass gets broken. It has really become a source of freedom. Oh, another broken glass. Ha! It was already broken. And repeating that allows me to see the importance of understanding impermanence. This glass is already broken. This talk is already given. This moment is already happening. I have no control over the next moment, and this moment has been conditioned by what came before. My job is not to judge it. My job is to be here for it. This glass is already broken. This body is already aging, dying. This moment, I'm pretty alive. There we are. Whether sitting, standing, walking, lying down, we practice mindfulness. We watch where our mind goes. And we know this is what's happening now. And all of the things that, all of the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening now, we say, ah, a story, a story, a meaning. This has meaning. This means it's a way of reaffirming that I'm in charge here. (laughs) I know what's happening. But with mindfulness, contemplation, concentration, and discernment. Discernment. This is skillful, this is not skillful. We can let go or cultivate whatever is happening. Now, there are, there are a lot of issues around whether people have free will. I've been arguing with my husband about this point. You know, how much choice do we have? This moment is conditioned by the last moment. It's conditioning the next moment. Certainly what I do now conditions what happens the next moment. Do I get to choose the next moment? It's kind of a matter of how you see free will, what you think about it, what what constitutes free will. But I do see choices, that I can make choices in this moment. I can't control the next moment, but I can make choices in this moment. I I can make a choice about what I'm paying attention to, I can make, I can't, I actually don't control thoughts arising and passing away. They arise and pass away without, without me controlling them. 
you know? I might decide to move my leg, but I don't control much about that operation. But I have the choice of how I pay attention to the moment. I have a choice about whether I further a way of thinking, whether I let go of a view or not. I have choices about those. I can ask the question. I can ask the question, is that really true? What else is happening here? What else is what else is here? What else is here? What am I leaning toward? Am I, am I leaning toward something? I want something to be true? Am I taking the unsatisfactoriness of this moment and trying to make it into something else? Oh. Have I assigned a meaning to this? A concept? Am I able to say, not sure, I'm not sure? The value of not sure is huge. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that what I think about this moment is true. I'm not sure that my experience of this moment is not colored by something that I ate this morning. So I may be, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm, uh, uh, let's say I'm sitting in a room and I decide um, there's a piece of raspberry tort from the bovine bakery, one of my favorite things in the world. It has raspberries, it's made with almond flour, it's just a delightful little thing. And there's one piece left and I want that piece. It's so good. It's pleasant, I can feel the pleasant. I've got the wanting down. I want that piece of tort. And then there's the movement toward I need that piece of tort. I need that piece of tort. I'm really hungry. I haven't had anything this morning. I really need that piece. Okay, that trip from pleasant to need, in this case, is actually pretty long. <laughs> you know, it's rare that I actually need a piece of tort. Now, if it has to do with my breath, I need to breathe. And the distance between that was a pleasant breath, I want another breath, I need another breath, is really short. That's, that's clear that I need breath to sustain my life. I don't need that piece of tort to su- sustain my life. Maybe to make it pleasant. You know, I can give you all kinds of reasons or thinking or meaning around that piece of tort but it's just a piece of tort. And while I'm thinking about it, maybe somebody else eats it. It's gone. How attached to that piece of tort was I? Well, if I saw it as already eaten, (laughs) probably not very attached. The letting go can happen anywhere. The letting go can happen anywhere. It can happen at the moment that you notice pleasant. You can say, ah, pleasant. It's just pleasant. Unpleasant. Oh, it's just unpleasant. You can let go there. You can let go at the, at the wanting. I want it to be different. 
I want, I want, I want, I want this better. I want that better. I want, I want to change that. I've got to have that. You can let go there. You can say, I've got to have that. How about the needing place? The need, I need. I really need a drink of water. I drank the, the glass of water, the drip of water. My throat feels more comfortable now. That need is totally gone. <laughs> it wasn't very strong to begin with because it was an idea. <laughs> but I could convince myself I needed that because, you know, the throat's getting kind of dry and this talking is... I could have let go any time. I didn't have to take the drink of water to let go. There's a a quote, which I think I've given here before, but I don't remember because I don't always say what's written in my document. So this is from Wistava Zimborska, who won a Nobel Prize for uh, poetry. She's a, a Polish poet. And she said, whatever inspiration is, It's born from a continuous, I don't know. Whatever inspiration is, it's born from a continuous, I don't know. And then she went on. This is from her Nobel uh, talk. She She talked about the dangers of not being open to not knowing. Not knowing. But they know, and whatever they know is enough for them once and for all. They don't want to find out about anything else since that might diminish the force of their arguments. But any knowledge that doesn't lead to new questions quickly dies out. It fails to maintain the temperature required for sustaining life. Any knowledge that doesn't lead to new questions quickly dies out. I loved that. What do you know And what questions does that bring up for you? It can be simple questions like, what else is here? What am I not seeing? What am I feeling? What is the attitude of my mind? What is the mood I've brought into this moment? And knowing that this is just this moment... It arises, it is, and it passes away. You know, these topics are not, the the whole thing about aggregates and the characteristics, they're usually, they're not covered very often in any depth because there's some tacit understanding that in order to watch your mind, you need to get rid of a lot of distractions. And, And the focusing in retreat is a good place to watch your mind and to understand things about your mind. It's also a good place to start forming the next set of views that you then have to un- undo. And the reason I'm talking about this is I think we can do this in any moment of our lives. We can see what is true. We can let go of our views about it. And we can be free in that moment. Just that moment. And if the brake lights come back on, fine, they come back on. In this moment, 
I'm not attached to that. In this moment, I let go of that. In this moment, I choose to be kind. In this moment, I choose to be kind. There's a, Sharon Salzberg wrote a, a delightful little book called Faith. And it's got, uh, let's see, I don't remember what the subtitle of it is, but it's something about trusting your own deepest experience. <clears throat> and she makes a point about faith, that faith is a journey. Faith is not a place that you go, and it definitely isn't a view. That a view, you know, a, a, all religions tend to be typified by having beliefs and truths and that you grab onto, and there's a kind of blind, blind faith associated with that. I believe that because you told me to believe that. And then there is the evolution over time of, and that might be something that gets you started, and then there is bright faith, where somebody says something that is inspiring to you, and it gives you energy to start on your own trek. And what follows that is questioning and doubting and trying to understand, really, does that work for me? Does, how does that feel for me? What does that feel like? Faith is the animation of the heart, she says. And it's necessary to claim the right to question what one sees and experiences. You go through doubt and despair, and you arrive at a final abiding faith, a kind of confidence that arises from seeing, ah, oh, I see, and I'm not held by that. That abiding faith. That's when we come to deeply understand, ah, ah, I can, by my experience, by my direct experience, I see what is true, I see what is unsatisfactory, I can let go of what is unsatisfactory and be free in this moment over and over and over again. And when I see I can do that, I develop confidence. I develop confidence in the practice of seeing. Ah, if I just see, I don't deliberately try to hurt myself. I don't deliberately grab onto suffering. When I'm in the middle of suffering, I may be overwhelmed by it. I may be tired and grumpy, and I don't want to come. But in the moment of actually seeing what it is, oh, that, then I can let go of it. And that weight and that suffering has changed character. I may still be besieged by uncertainty and uh, any number of... of, uh, accompanying thoughts, but I'm no longer carrying the weight. Ah, okay, I can let go of that. We're cultivating the quality of awareness to make the mind stronger. To make the mind stronger. So that we are more capable of understanding, we have less resistance, less grasping. Because of learning... We understand more clearly, and with this comes confidence. Confidence. 
There's a, uh, I'm, I'm reading a wonderful book right now on mindfulness by Joseph Goldstein, and he covers everything, which is why I was so overwhelmed with how, how do we end this series. <laughs> you know, he wrote a book. <laughs> we don't have that much time. But one of the examples he gives about trying over and over and over again is, a, is about a cellist, Pablo Casals, very famous cellist if you haven't heard of him, a master. And at age 93, he was still practicing three hours a day. And people said, why are you doing that? And his response was, I'm beginning to see some improvement. (laughs) This is how we meet each moment. I'm beginning to see some improvement. So I'm going to close with a poem by Jane Hirschfeld called The Promise. Mysteriously they entered those few minutes. Mysteriously they left. As if the great dog of confusion guarding my heart, who is always sleepless, suddenly slept. It was not any awakening of the large, not so much as that. Only a stepping back from the petty. I gazed at the range of mountains. I drank from the stream, tossed in a small stone from the bank. Whatever direction the fates of my life might travel, I trusted. Even the greedy direction, even the grieving, trusted. There was nothing left to be saved from, bliss or danger. The dog's tail wagged a little in his dream. That, you may remember, was the dog of confusion. Let me read it again. Mysteriously they entered those few minutes. Mysteriously they left. As if the great dog of confusion guarding my heart, who is always sleepless, suddenly slept. It was not any awakening of the large, not so much as that, only a stepping back from the petty. I gazed at the range of mountains. I drank from the stream, tossed in a small stone from the bank. Whatever direction the fates of my life might travel, I trusted. Even the greedy direction, even the grieving, trusted. There was nothing left to be saved from, bliss or danger. The dog's tail wagged a little in his dream. May the dog of confusion, guarding your heart, wag his tail. May you find moments of freedom. Thank you. So, we have questions. Do we have a microphone here? We have an enthusiastic question. (laughs) When I hear your talk today, it's like listening to fine music. It's so delightful. Oh, thank you. It's very nice. (laughs) But I had a question I had is the process. You mentioned the process. Yes. Can you talk more about the process that you you were talking about, how you got here and how you had insight of process? Um, Last week I talked a lot about process uh, in that um, let's see I'm going to try to find a shortcut to this and I'm not sure it answers your question so Bear with me. So what we talked about was the, the aggregates of experience, that is, 
the physical reality, the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the perception, the naming of something, the thinking about, and the awareness, that those aggregates are what constitutes experience. And they are a process. There's no there there. There's no this is who I am, this is mine. So can I talk about anger as being mine if it just arises and passes away? And, it's, and whether I call it anger is tied up with awareness, perception, physical reality. All of those things constitute the, experiment, the experience, and they are a process. They're not a thing. So this has a lot to do with how we see ourselves because it is in the aggregates that we form a notion, a view about who we are. I am someone who. This is, this is not an unchanging fact. It arises, it is here, and it passes away. In that sense, it's all a process. So when I talked about the process of moving from my view about not wanting to be here because I didn't want to drive to seeing what else was true, which was the weight I was carrying of trying to say something significant, as soon as I saw that uh, approach, that gathering together of views about the experience, I could see that I was transposing my experience to give it meaning that was not accurate. And by allowing myself to see that it was just a feeling of vulnerability, I could allow myself to be vulnerable. And in that process, I freed myself from the weight. Does that answer the question? Okay, thanks. Lolly. I don't know if I could articulate this, but anyway, I'll try. There's... Oh, thank you. Um, there's there's that moment where where I have all that understanding and all the stuff that's going on in my mind and so on. And I know that the best thing to do is to do this or to to go in, in a particular direction. But then there's habit and there's behavior and there's life that has created um, conditioning. And so sometimes I feel um, like I'm two people or maybe more. And it's very confusing and I feel as though I want to step over the ledge and do it. You know, just do it, say it, be it. And I do have moments that I do, but I do feel this like, almost like uh, something across my chest that kind of strangles this particular moment for me. Yes. <laughs> we call that suffering. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is, we have, we are in the habit of thinking of ourselves in a certain way. 
which is actually very limiting, and it isn't even true. But we are used to seeing ourselves a certain way. Um, if If I see myself as a good manager then I know there are characteristics that a good manager has, you know, and I'll list those characteristics. So then I have to go through my whole life being a good manager, which means I have to do all those things, right? And every time I'm not doing those things, well, I'm not being myself. No. (laughs) When I'm not doing those things, I'm not being the person I imagine myself to be. Not, Not what's arising in this moment. The habits are so strong. I can't emphasize how strong they are. Um, and, and I use the example of manager because for a long time it was really important to me. I identified with being a manager. And I had an enormous budget and people who worked with me. And oh, May I never have to do that again. Really. What a burden that was to make myself into a particular kind of person. And to believe that I was that person. What suffering. Now, the habits of mind that led to that are still there. When I'm in a room of people, I have to remind myself that what I have to say is not the most important thing to say. Now, you'd think after all this time and all this practice, I wouldn't have to remind myself every time. Every time. The habit of mind arises. I do not have to grab that train and ride it. I can let it go. And over time, it becomes easier and easier to let it go. I've now discovered that other people have great ideas. And that when I'm out of the way, they can, they can actually use them. <laughs> and it sounds funny. But, but believe me, this has been a painful learning for me. That I don't have to control everything. I don't have to be responsible for everything. In fact, that's the very movement that happened when I was talking about the process of realizing I was carrying this weight of, I don't have to do that. I don't have to be responsible for everybody in the world becoming enlightened. No, I don't have to be responsible for that. That was exactly the movement of the mind that allowed me to let go of it, was realizing that I was trying to control what was going to happen in the room. It is there all the time. It takes different forms. I don't have to own it. I don't have to be it. I can let go of that tightening across the chest and just say, oh, that again. What happens if I don't do that? What happens if I am not that person? Those are useful questions. Thank you for your question. Thank you. We have one more. So I laughed because I identified with that statement <laughs> so fully from periods when I worked at a regular day job and right now doing a volunteer job. Thank you for the humor and everything else. Yeah, we, we are not who we are. Please. I just love that, the journal of irreproducible results. Oh, yeah. It seems like... I mean, it seems like we're all, our lives are like journals of irreproducible results. But, you, know, <laughs> you couldn't yes. do it again if we want, you know, yes. no, no matter how. But it's interesting to note the, um, 
there's a place I can get to sometimes where in this in the flux of things, it's like it's. You were saying something about being strong. And I was thinking, is it strong or is it more like sometimes the mind is like this martial artist that's more nimble and it can yes. change quickly and it just accepts that everything is impermanent and there's this awareness that is kind of not necessarily anticipating but just going with the flow. And yet, on the other hand, our lives are are so demanding to be to produce reproducible effects especially if you have children or it doesn't even have to have children just going out to your car you want the thing to start every day you know whatever it is there's this there's this one side that wants reproducible research organized everything there's a place for everything and everything in its place you know and you can get really uh systematic, and this is the system. I mean, you know, in the workplace, it's the system is how it goes. But then, on the other hand, it's the other way. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, you, really. It is fascinating. And it's, it's uh, thank you for that. Uh, you know, <clears throat> there is a lot of reassurance, and, and thank goodness, there is a lot of reproducibility to the day. You know, I can sit on this and not worry about falling down. I'm already down. <laughs> you know, gravity is pretty reliable. It's also true that anything could happen at any time, and we need to hold both those things. This is what's likely to happen, but anything could happen at any time. And it is clinging to the likelihood that causes suffering. So we may want our car to start every time we go to start it, and, you know, one day the battery's dead. <sighs> other hand you can be stuck in a rut and things don't change and, you know, and nothing changes nothing and you say changes. why isn't anything changing <laughs> yes <laughs> okay thank you all very much